The presenting sponsor of Top Docs is Netflix. With the Oscar nominations announced and voting just around the corner, we want to call your attention to our interviews with Academy Award-nominated filmmakers. For example, check out our conversation with Anne Alvergay and Deborah McClutchy about their film, The Martha Mitchell Effect. Martha Mitchell, the wife of former Attorney General and Nixon campaign chief John Mitchell, was dismissed at the time of Watergate as being crazy and even a drunk. She was, in fact, the victim of a well-planned gaslighting campaign hatched by Nixon, his top aides, and even her own husband. Stunning in its revelations and highly immersive in its cinematic approach, this powerful film will grant you a new perspective on those dark days of American history. You can watch The Martha Mitchell Effect now on Netflix. So here's my log line. A U.S. Marine in the Midwest who is filled with heat goes to bomb the local mosque. When he gets there, the members of the mosque greet him with kindness and the unexpected happens. Today I spoke with director Joshua Sattel about his Oscar-nominated short, Stranger at the Gate. Joshua received his first Emmy nomination at 22 for Lost and Found, his documentary about orphan children in Romania. He has gone on to direct the IDA documentary award-winning The Many Sad Fates of Mr. Teledano, and he's also directed documentary series The Secret Life of Muslims, which was a Peabody Award finalist and an Emmy nominee. Josh has also directed Queer Eye for the Straight Guy episodes and even the nonfiction film War Incorporated, which starred John Cusack. If you like this conversation, please do subscribe to the podcast, and you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at TopDocsPod. Here's my conversation with Joshua Septel about Stranger at the Gate. Joshua, welcome to Top Docs. Thank you. It's great to be here. And congratulations on the nomination. Well-deserved. Thanks. Your film opens with a young woman who will later be identified as Emily McKinney. She says, most of the time when I tell people this story, they tell me they don't believe me, that I'm making it up, or that it's not true. So this is an interesting place to start this story. This is before the title. It's a person who, in some ways, maybe isn't as central to the story as maybe she could be in some ways. That's arguable. And then... This particular sentiment, which is the story is incredible, <laughs> is it's really interesting. It's an eccentric place to start, I'd argue. Why did you decide to start here? It's a really great question. And I guess I would maybe, I don't know if you, I don't know if disagree is the right word because I don't think you said this definitively, but I think she's a really important character in the film and possibly a main character, you could argue. You don't realize that until the end of the film, or at least till the middle. But she leads us into the story and gives us a hint of what's to come. It's just a really important moment to me for making a promise to the viewer of what they're going to get and that they might want to stick around because a lot of stuff's about to happen. So give it a minute and buckle up. When she says, when I tell the story, a lot of people don't believe me. That makes me sit on the edge of my seat. <laughs> you know, we wanted to draw people in and then keep shifting gears so that you're off balance. I would say the first 10 minutes of the film, we really want people to be off balance and to try to be figuring out what is this? Where is this going? And then you start to understand where it's going and it's pretty scary. And then things change again. And so we wanted to keep people on their toes throughout. 
and we will talk more about this, but the construction of the film is really, the architecture is really great. And the first 15 minutes, it leads up to a point, And then the latter 15 minutes sort of follows along. She goes on to explain that the he, and we're not shown who this he is yet, came into her life as a great stepfather. But then also you always hear about mass murderers and how terrifying they are, but you can never really imagine that a hurtful and harmful person to be in the same house as you. And then we see pictures of them intercut with a sort of looming presence, you know, moving into screen slowly into focus, literally. And the shot construction when he arrives is interesting, I think, because he's in this short sleeve tee. He's got these massive arms with these tattoos. And the background, you know, if we hadn't just seen the young woman against this background, it's kind of pale. It almost looks institutional. You can almost imagine that he was in prison. The first time I saw it, I was like, is this prison? Yeah, definitely. Look, when we filmed this, we filmed it in the basement of the Islamic Center of Muncie, where this whole story mm. takes place. Wow. And yeah. that's what it looked like. But we also had some thoughts about how we wanted to frame the story and how we wanted the viewer to perceive things. And there were some elements of decisions made around that, for sure. Mac had a few different shirts that he could wear for the interview. And one of them was a tank top that was a ratty tank top that showed off all his tattoos. We chose that because we thought that also revealed a lot of his character. Just to see his arms, that's the story of his life. There's a Marine Corps tattoo. There's a, a skull on his hand. There's a martial arts tattoo. All these things that tell you a lot about this character. And we wanted to reveal that right off the bat. It does set up that, as you said, that sort of tension that's going to, um, everything else there after follows, you have this sense of potential danger, I think, that's lurking. So after the title card, we're told we're in Muncie, Indiana. And this is a town of 60,000 that holds an outside place in our culture, I think, our cultural imagination. It's famously Middletown, where Robert Helen Lynn in the 20s and 30s did their studies and published their books about what they called a typical American town. Obviously, even at that point, it wasn't typical for America. America was a much more diverse place than Middletown, but it has this sort of mythos about it. Was that at all a consideration? Or were you thinking about that at all as you were moving forward in the film? I know you're the first person who's brought this up. I've read Middletown, so... <laughs> okay, that's fascinating. Okay. Yeah, so most people don't know about this and this study, and it's I think it's ongoing. You know, it's part of Ball State University right now. But yeah, that, that absolutely. And we thought about that a lot. In fact, we even thought about when we first thought about the name of the film, we thought about playing around with that a little bit, but we moved in a different direction because we know what else in the world except for you knows about this. But yeah, no, it, it's like Muncie, Indiana is what a great miniature version of America in some ways. And we definitely wanted to accentuate that and explore that because to me, this story has a really universal aspect to it. This could have happened anywhere, but it's such an American place on the surface, Muncie, Indiana, yet it's very diverse. That's a microcosm. Part of the way we portrayed it was we used a lot of aerial shots. So you're constantly looking down on Muncie, seeing how it's set up and how it's constructed and how it's spaced out. We want Muncie to be a character in the film. It really is. And for the record, Hundreds of my former students from UCLA and Georgia Tech have read bits and pieces of Middletown, so they're out there hopefully seeing this in a different light. I'm glad. Um, Thank you. Thanks for 
you know, what I'm suggesting here a little bit is that there's these different sorts of auras that are being set up, this aura of danger and this aura of normality that are coming into conflict that uh, you, you exploit very powerfully. And so in some of the early shots we see now, we see this very nice house, clearly owners of some means, and we may be primed because we're in the prototypical Midwest to see a particular person. And then you confound our expectations, I think, in kind of multiple ways. We meet B.B. Brahmi. You know, she wears a head covering that we identify she's likely Muslim. And then we see her husband, Dr. Saber Barami, and they're on his or her treadmills. <laughs> Most people don't have two treadmills. They do. So they can walk together. And as they walk together, they talk about how they love American country music. It's coming from the heart, he says. It tells you so much about how people feel about society. Could you talk about sort of, I think you're challenging our expectations. For sure. Yeah. That's the first thing you learn about them. This couple, you know, they're Afghan refugees who came to America in the 80s and have had a success and are a big part of their community. You see them and the first thing you learn is that they love country music. And to me, that was, again, part of what I was saying earlier, this idea of keeping the viewer off balance. Yeah. And defying expectations. I think defying expectations is probably a theme throughout this film. And we had a lot of fun with that because that's what this story is. It's at the heart of it. It's just twists and turns that defy your expectations. So the country music thing, we added it a little later into the edit, but I just felt like that's like the first thing you need to learn about these people. It's just a fun fact and it throws you off balance. The idea of country music and who likes country music, it's kind of loaded. We have this idea when you close your eyes and say, picture a country music fan. You know, I think a lot of us would picture the same thing. And it's probably not a woman in hijab and her Afghan husband listening to uh, their favorite country tunes. No, in fact, it's probably Mac, right? Exactly. Um, yeah. Richard McKinney or Mac, we meet him now. He's the big man we saw in the beginning. And he tells us that he struggled as a youth, but he chose the Marine Corps. And he gives a couple of different reasons. One is to impress his father, who had been a Marine. And there's a visual suggestion, at least, that his father had been in Vietnam. And then also to get away from a life of using and selling drugs. Can you talk about this choice? It's a very important choice in his life. His father was in the Marines, Mac's father, and I think he wanted to impress his dad. They clearly had some issues. In fact, even today, they don't really speak to each other. He saw a path to get away from what he was doing, which was dealing drugs and getting in trouble. And he thought, if I do this thing, if I join the Marines, I can be like my dad and I can maybe do something with my life. And so he set out to do that. He tells a story that gives us a sense how he coped with being in the Marines, how he coped with killing people. But it's really a story as well about how he begins to see the world and begins to see other people, right? So he has a discussion with a higher up, a commanding officer of some sort about coping. And this officer or non-commissioned officer or whatever says, imagine you're on the range, you're just shooting at a target. As long as you can look at them as anything but human, you won't have any problems. And this little suggestion, which I'm sure was offered to be helpful, really has compounding problems for him as he moves forward in the world, I think. That was Mac's coping mechanism. You know, he was he was struggling to deal with the pain and he, he was struggling to deal with what it was like to have to kill other people. And he had to figure out how to do it because that was his job. So he goes to this guy and the guy says, flip the switch turn it off, you know, dehumanize, make them not human. You know, I think a lot of people end up doing that in the military. The issue is that it works sometimes when you're there and you're 
doing it, but then either it comes back to haunt you or you can't switch it off. You know, you come back to civilian life and you don't know how to flip that switch back to being normal again. I think that's where people get into trouble and really suffer. That's what happened to Mac is he came back and he was still filled with hate and saw Muslims as not being human. And then we then cut to the Islamic center of Muncie. And we get to meet the people who actually inhabit the center, right? So there's Jomo Williams, who appears to be African-American, a Black American. Uh, he talks about the history of lynching in Muncie. And his, he grew to dislike white people based upon this history, found great beauty in Islam. And then Zaki, who is Saber and Bibi's son, I believe, who was born into Islam. And he talks about how it was founded by an Afghan, a Syrian, and a Bangladeshi, people of different walks of life. I think you're really trying to set up the broad range of folks who actually do belong to this Islamic center. That's right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, so when I say that this story is a microcosm of America, yeah, everyone's represented almost. It's like there are immigrants, there are African-Americans, there are white people who've been around for a long time, and they're all coming together. And in this case, they're coming together and it's a collision course. And that's the tension in the film. But the congregants at the mosque are really interesting, diverse mix of people. I think that's what makes that mosque really special is that, again, we go back to the studies of Muncie and being this American town. Ball State University is there. And that university attracts people from all over the world, professors from all over, doctors who are coming to take care of the people who live there. So this town is surprisingly diverse, even though it's really in, in the middle of way out there. And so this mosque, because of its diverse group of people, I think becomes a really interesting place where there's a lot of open-mindedness and just a lot of beautiful things happening in that community. In the fallout of 9-11, as you say, there's some changes. Mac gets injured, has to leave the military, but also for the people from the Islamic Center, things change for them too. They feel like they're looked at differently. BB suggests that even insults are thrown her way. So you're capturing both, I think, Mac's rage in many ways, but also there was this broader, and probably still is, this broader sort of change in opinion, change in feeling in America, for, in some portions of America. Yeah, 9-11 was a turning point for so many people, right? Just about everybody who was around and was sentient. It changed the way we saw things. It's changed the way we saw our country. If you were an immigrant or a Muslim person, your life changed that day. People saw you differently. And I have so many friends who told me stories like this. And you hear that in the film, you hear how things changed on that day for the members of the mosque in Muncie, that everyone started looking at them differently. People started saying things to them. People were fearful. Of them. People were hateful toward them. It changed everything. And it also informed people like overseas fighting and trying to kill Muslims because of all the wars that were set off from 9-11, that also created a mindset for him and deepened his hatred toward Muslims. And so the, again, this collision course of these people who are trying to live their lives in Muncie, built this beautiful community, this beautiful mosque, and then this guy who's fighting overseas and fighting wars because of 9-11, and they're again heading right toward each other and hurtling toward each other in this story. This, this is a film that's very attentive to those issues that the Islamic folks face in this country, but it's also concerned with veterans. 
Mac is thinking about how we can hurt these folks. And he has this incredible line, which is, my country's done with me, but I'm not done with it. Can you talk about what he meant by that? It's so powerful. So he was in the military and then he left for a few years and that didn't go well. So he went back in and he did 25 years of service. And that's where he felt most comfortable. And then he got injured and he was forced to retire. All of a sudden, he's back home in Muncie, no longer has his military career, and he's lost. And he's also PTSD, and he's filled with hatred toward Muslims. And he just says this line, like you said, my country's done with me, but I'm not done with it, because they forced him to retire. But he still wanted to fight. He still wanted to kill Muslims. He still wanted to do what he thought was right. You know, it's what he was told to do, and he wanted to keep doing it. He's suddenly in the middle of this small town, and he wants to keep doing what he was doing overseas. And so he sets out and plans to uh, bomb the Islamic Center of Muncie. As you noted, he's filled with hatred. And as his ex-wife, Dana McKinney, points out, he's clearly suffering from trauma. She can see it in his behavior. But he also is missing something, right? He calls it his band of brothers. It's a very important thing. And I, I, there's one image, a couple of images repeated. There's a target that's repeated. Another image that's repeated is this picture of him in the military with his band of brothers. And their faces have been, looks like they have been marked out with a, a Sharpie. It's a powerful picture. Can you talk about that? Is that actually the photo? Did he mark them out with a Sharpie? What's going on there? Yeah, this photo that he looks at, and it's, you know, honestly, like Mac only has a few photos from his military service because he, he destroyed most of them. He told me when he was drunk one night, but he, he has a couple and one of them, like you said, is this photo. It's probably like five guys and they're all standing with their guns and they're in military camo. The other four guys, their faces are drawn over with Sharpie. So you, it just looks like this weird pattern of you cannot see their faces at all. I think Mac did that himself to hide their identities some time ago. I don't know why, but he drew on this photo and it's very haunting. Because I know that some of them are no longer living. According to Mac, they committed suicide. So when you know that and you see this photo and it's just Mac is the only person whose face you can see, it's very powerful and disturbing. Yeah. And I think it also fits into your themes of seeing and being seen, of humanizing and dehumanizing. You know, probably the most confounding part of this story is what happens next, which is Emily comes home from school and one of the mothers has shown up at school and she's fully veiled. She doesn't understand this and she tries to talk to Mac about this and he just responds with great fury. He's very upset. He's both angry and sad and he cries. He's felt he's failed his family by letting the enemy get near them. But he also sees in Emily's eyes that she doesn't get it. She thinks he's literally gone crazy and he decides that he needs to find proof and so he starts hanging out at the Islamic Center. And this is the most confounding in many ways and fateful decision he makes, right? What was he looking for? What was his thought process here? So that scene, it, I call it a scene in the film, is it's, I think it's one of the most important moments, if not the most important moment in the film. Because this eight-year-old girl is looking at her father and saying, what is wrong with you? You know, like, why are you acting this way? Why are you so filled with hate? And she has this clarity she has this ability to see what's right, this purity of a child, it somehow gets through to him. Even though he freaks out and he yells at her, he goes off and he cries. And then he's like, no, I got to prove her. I got to prove that she's wrong. He's trying to prove this eight-year-old wrong, that the Muslims are bad. And I do need to go 
and blow up this mosque. There's just something I think so powerful in seeing this through the eyes of an eight-year-old who just sees the truth. But he goes to prove her wrong, to prove this eight-year-old wrong. So he goes to the mosque and he wants to gather information to show that what he's doing is right. And that's what sends him there. And that's what kind of turns the whole story on its head and changes the direction of the narrative. Yeah, it's very, very powerful. This is right at 15 minutes, I should point out. He goes, and it's very interesting because, again, the themes of seeing and not being seen, like he really believes that they're going to kill him. <laughs> He's seeking to kill them, but he believes, I'm going to become a story in Al Jazeera, he says, that these peaceful, everyday members of his community are going to grab him, take him to the basement, and put a sword to his throat. It's amazing how, again, he's not seeing right, and he's imagining that they see him as the enemy, and they don't. Yeah, again, it's like that idea of flipping that switch. He's been overseas, he's been fighting wars, and he has this idea of what he's been taught about Muslims, and he's literally had Muslim people shooting at him. So he had these skewed ideas of reality. He's also, at the time, was watching a lot of Fox News, he jokes about that, but he was getting a lot of information that wasn't good information. And so when he goes to the mosque, he, he's scared of them. He thinks they're killers. They're just a bunch of like professors and doctors who work at the local university and local hospitals who have a community center where they pray. He was all mixed up back. And what I really like is it next you tell us how he was perceived by the Islamic Center members. It's very interesting because they have their own biases. And so they talk about this. Bibi says, I don't want to say he was scary, but he was scary. And Saver says, you know, he looked like a redneck. But what's amazing is they can get beyond that initial stereotyping. They can see him as a human being. And so Saber greets him and hugs him and tells him he's welcome and has to mean it, right? Because it's requirement. I think it's both religious and personal. He seems like a very warm person. And BB really gives him great amount of attention. Like they are able to somehow get through and, and meet him as a human being. It's really amazing. And these people, BB and Sabra Barami are incredible. I find them to be incredibly inspiring. I want to be like them. <laughs> and I think a lot of people who watch this film, they say, God, I wish I could be more like BB and Saber. They're just the most kind and welcoming people you've ever met. They welcome the stranger, so to speak. They treat people they don't know with great kindness. And so that with Mac, this guy who came with the intention to kill them, and they welcomed him. They hugged him. Saber got down on his knees and hugged Mac's legs. He explains that part of what he was trying to do was to just show Mac that he was safe, that he was safe there. Mac didn't know what to do. He didn't expect that. He was scared. Mac was scared. Suddenly, as his people hugging his legs and welcoming him. And I think he was very thrown off guard. But it got him thinking, like, what is going on here? And it got him thinking, starting to think a little bit differently about his views. And that was a slow process. And it's amazing because the very group that he fears the most is the group that turns out can reach him. And I'm sure his family tried. I wouldn't surprise me if there were doctors in the VA system who tried. But for some reason, this is the group that could get through to him and could become a new like band of brother and sisters for him. What's interesting is, is that E.B., who was one of the co-founders of the mosque and is the president of the mosque now, she said that she really wanted Mac to feel respected because they understood he was a soldier. They understood that there was something wrong with him and they wanted him to feel respected. And she sat down with him and looked him in the eye and asked him about his family and 
asked him about his life. She really spent time with him and learned about him. Well, the next day, Mac decided to come back and he started coming back all the time. And the more he came back, the more they interacted with him and they gave him responsibilities in the community. They had him act as the security guard out front sometimes. They included him in dinners and meetings and they made him feel a part of something. And that was, according to Mac, that started to really change him because he had been part of this thing for 25 years in the U.S. military, and suddenly he was part of nothing. And when he came to this mosque, intending to do harm, they welcomed him and made him feel a part of something new. And I think we'll leave uh, Mac and the members of the mosque there, and everyone should turn their attention to this fine film. It's you know 30 minutes long, and it's well worth the time spent. I want to ask you, Joshua, we were talking a little bit before we started recording I think that there has been, and maybe there's still in some quarters, in fact, I can tell you there are in some quarters, a view that shorts are kind of, you know, not quite features. They're something you do as a warm up in your career before you do the real work or their experiments. Um, this is an incredibly professionally produced documentary. When I was speaking to Ben Proudfoot, who won the Academy Award last year for the Queen of Basketball, he's like, no, no, I, I like shorts. I want to do shorts. That's what I do. Can you talk about your thoughts about the short format and where it is? Sure. Yeah. Maybe it's a little like, you know, there are some people who write novels and there's some people who write short stories. Maybe that's an apt analogy. You know, in my career, I've directed feature like narrative scripted films. I've directed feature length documentaries. I've done commercials. There's something about short docs that I'm always drawn to. And I find that I've tended to make at least one every year for the last several years, if not more. Part of it is that they're just easier to do. If you're going to do a feature doc, you need to raise money. It's going to cost you a lot. Whereas with a short doc, sometimes you can figure out a way to get it done, you know, and it doesn't take as long either. Or it doesn't always take as long. This one actually took a long time. Stranger at the Gate took a long time. But you can get it done. And it's just more within reach sometimes if you're really busy or you can't raise the money, you can still tell a story. I find that Short docs, the ones I've made recently, I don't know, like they, they've been impactful. Like I've been able to reach a lot of people. Sometimes millions of people have watched our short docs. You know, it takes you less time to watch them. And now that the internet exists, you know, before the internet, I think short docs were really hard to get a hold of because you couldn't see them in theaters and you couldn't really, maybe you could take them out of your local library and project them or something, you know, or then there were, there were VHS tapes. But nowadays, I think some people prefer these shorter films. And I've had people come up to me after our screenings and say, I like how short this film was. It had so much in it, but I could watch it in 30 minutes. A lot of people say that documentaries tend to be too long, feature length documentaries, that they're always too long. And I think that's an issue. I find that to be the case frequently as well. And, you know, shorts are usually the right length. Yeah, I agree. And I think the best of them are, are as good as the best feature documentaries. They're just different. So again, Joshua, congratulations. This film tells a compelling story about love and forgiveness, but it also deeply explores these broader cultural issues around how broader culture treats Muslims, immigrants, and how people in those groups look at the broader American culture as well. And I think also, to paraphrase, Max's ex-wife, Dana McKinney, it, it talks to us about how much our troops sacrifice, 
how much they suffer for the things that we ask them to do. So thank you for this. Thank you so much, Michael, for giving me the chance to talk about it. When we showed this film at the Islamic Center of Muncie, after we finished it, it was the first place we showed it. There about 80 people came screening the film. I didn't know what to expect. Didn't know if they were going to like it or not like it. The lights came on and one guy stood up and he said, I just want to say that I think every American needs to watch this film. And that's our hope. That's our hope is that we can get as many people to see this film as possible because I think there's a hopeful message about our country and our world in it that I hope inspires people. If you can discuss it, what's up next for you? So I've spent the last several years making films that deal with American Muslim stories. The reason why I do that is I grew up facing anti-Semitism as a boy. Kids call me names, they call me Jew Kaik, threw pennies at me to show that Jews are cheap, stuff like that. So after 9-11, when I was a working filmmaker at that point, and I saw my Muslim friends facing hatred, I felt like I, I could do something about it as a filmmaker. And so I started several years ago, about eight years ago, really in earnest making short films about American Muslims and creating a platform for the, that storytelling. And so this film, Stranger at the Gate, is part of that. It's actually the 25th film we've made. We're already working on the next one, which is about a 9-11 hate crime victim who was shot and survived and has a very amazing story to tell. Can't talk much more about it than that at this stage. We tend to ask people, if you have a hidden gem, a documentary you've seen that you think doesn't get the attention that it deserves. This is one from the way from the past. The film is called LBJ, and it is an American experience from PBS directed by David Grubin. I don't know exactly what year it was made, but I think it was either the late 80s or the early 90s. I just love that film because Grubin was able to create so much emotion and really like portray in a very deep way Lyndon Baines Johnson. It's impossible not to sort of fall in love with him and, and to be rooting for him, this really flawed guy. And it's all done with like archival material and great interviews. I've just always gone back to that film time and again to look at the storytelling and the way that they created so much emotion out of just old film clips and newsreel footage. Mm -hmm.